All right, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. After last week, I looked out and I was not expecting to see very many people. (laughs) Paul has been teaching us in chapter 4 in this part here about how to live a worthy Christian life. If we're going to do that, we must reject the self-life. We need to embrace the kind of life that God recreated us for. And so Paul, he has been invading our space. He's been getting very personal, up close and personal with us about how our conduct needs to change. And to do this, Paul is addressing various situations of our personal conduct by following a pattern. He says we need, with each subject he's going to address, he says we need to stop doing something we were doing. In verse 22, he says that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful us. We need to stop doing something we were doing. We need to let God renew our thinking on that subject, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then thirdly, he says we need to begin acting in a new way, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That is the pattern that Paul has been using when addressing these various topics. And so last week, we covered honesty and handling anger righteously. This morning, we're going to address generosity and proper communication. So I know everyone already does that perfectly, so no one will be convicted this morning. That was like the shaky, that's not really funny laugh. So, Chapter 4, we begin in verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. So Paul here now, he gives out this new thing that we need to stop doing. Let him that stole steal no more. Stop. What he's saying is stop taking someone else's property without permission. Stop taking someone else's property without permission. Now, again, similar to lying, I had someone come to me, actually I had multiple people come to me over the week and say, what a liar I was. Well, this morning you're going to find out what a thief you are. <laughs> when we evaluate whether we're doing that or not in our lives, we tend to think, well, I don't take the neighbor's tools and keep them forever, or I don't rob banks, Right? But Paul is getting way up in our personal space here. This word here, to steal, it means taking someone else's property without permission. He says, stop thinking to yourself, oh, that person won't mind if I use their fill-in-the-blank, or they have plenty of fill-in-the-blank, or they won't miss that, or my parents won't care that I grabbed a few bucks out of the coin jar. They're my family. They understand. All of those things fall into this category. It's any time we take someone else's property without permission. Now, theft is when I decide it's okay to take something that doesn't belong to me without getting permission first from the person it does belong to. Now, that then also widens the meaning. That means that this also includes stealing time from my employer by being lazy or by being dishonest about when I arrive or when I leave work. It means stealing resources from other people because I refuse to work or because I won't humble myself to get a job that I deem is beneath me or doesn't pay enough for my skill set. Paul says that all of those ideas, anytime I'm going to take something that doesn't belong to me without permission that does belong to someone else, anytime I'm doing that, it's the self-life mindset. Jesus taught us something different. He says, 
something different to us. And so Paul says, stop taking things that don't belong to you, that belong to someone else without permission, but rather, which means instead do the exact opposite, rather let him labor. It means you must be regularly engaged in work. And then he defines what kind of work we should regularly be engaged in. He says that let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. The phrase there just means that which is morally good. In other words, the only employment that is beneath a Christian is immoral employment. You can't be an axe murderer for Jesus. Can't be a pimp for Jesus. Can't be a thief for Jesus. But if it's morally okay, morally good, then there's no such thing as any type of employment that is beneath a Christian. God could be glorified in any work that is good, whether or not society deems it as worth your time or worth, the, it's paid what you're worth. God can be glorified in any type of work that is good. Work has value according to the Scriptures. God created Adam and Eve, and He gave them the job of tending to the Garden of Eden. He didn't drop them in the Garden of Eden, and He said, go for some nice walks, and by the way, here's a PlayStation 5, enjoy yourself. It's not what He said. He gave them the garden to tend in perfection before sin, before man ever had an economy going. He gave them work to do. So work has value in the Scriptures. We will have responsibilities in Jesus' kingdom when we rule and reign with Him. You will not be up on a cloud just doing a harp. I mean, unless that's your job assignment. <laughs> Pastor Chuck always used to say, I'm asking for Hawaii. <laughs> he loved to surf. Work isn't just a byproduct of man's sin or man's economic systems. It is part of God's plan for us. And therefore, Christians should be known for a good work ethic. Our reputation in the workforce shouldn't be that we're the unfriendly person at work, or we're the lazy person at work, or we're the cranky person at work. We should be seen as hardworking, kind, and reasonable because our goal is to glorify God in our work. Amen? A few of you agreed. Now, how does that happen? Well, that will only happen by letting God change the way we think about work, by renewing our mind through studying God's Word. In fact, that's what Paul told the Thessalonians. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's such a cool verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 10 through 12, but verse 11 is, is kind of the part here. Paul's been telling them, he's like, man, concerning brotherly love, everybody knows you guys have it, which is really interesting because Paul had only spent four weeks with them. This was a baby church with a bunch of baby Christians in it, and man, Jesus had radically changed them so much that they had a deep brotherly love for each other that their reputation had gone out to other churches. And at the end of verse 10, Paul says, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Keep growing, keep maturing, keep adding, keep becoming more like Christ. And he says, we also beseech you that you study to be quiet. Isn't that an interesting way to phrase it? How are they going to study to be quiet? Well, they need to learn God's Word. If they're going to get more of Jesus' character, they need to be in God's Word. And so he says, we're beseeching you that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you walk honestly towards those who are without, unbelievers, and so, and so that you may have lack of nothing. 
Paul, in just the three or four weeks he was with them before he got run out of town because of persecution, is now sharing with this church who's living in a community who doesn't like them. They're persecuting the believers there. So it's not like work environment is always a friendly environment. And yet he tells them, study so that you can work hard. You can have a good work ethic. So that you can have an honest reputation amongst all the unbelievers you're around. So you don't lack anything. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 with me. Paul says similar things. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Those of you who are out, you're not working, and you're out eating everybody else's bread. He says, go get a job. Go out and work. Eat your own bread. Stop being a busybody. In other words, there's value in work, and our time should look, when we dedicate our time towards providing for our families and having a good report amongst the unbelievers we interact with, that should be something we value, something that we look at as a positive thing, not a negative thing. There's a very negative view towards work in American culture today. There's the idea that I'm owed something, and I don't have to do anything to to get it, that I'm owed a certain kind of pay or I'm owed a certain kind of style of life. That is a very unique view when compared to the rest of the world. When you look at places, I'm not saying laziness isn't a problem in other places in the world, but this idea that I'm owed something or that work is not valuable, that is a very foreign idea to most of the rest of the world. And it is largely due to how prosperous we are. We prize probably higher than anything free time and what I want to do with my free time. The good life is seen as one where free time is the highest prize, right? The American dream. You want to get to a place where you work hard enough and you earn enough so you can retire and have free time, right? Now, everybody wants to do different things with our free time, but that's the goal. But that is not the good life according to God. Being engaged in work is part of the good life because it enables us to do something, which is where we go from theft all the way full circle to how the Christian is supposed to be radically different. We're to be working faithfully so we can be generous. Not to be takers, but to be givers. Look at the end here. That, in other words, this is why we should stop stealing and rather regularly engage in work. That he may have to give to him that needs. That we might possess the capacity to help out someone who's in need. We're to put off taking other people's property without permission, let God renew our mind about work, and then put on working hard so we can take from out of our property to be generous to those who have a need. That's the Christian mindset. That's the generosity that Christ had. Think about it. What did Jesus do? We're going to celebrate it at the end of service today, the Lord's Supper. What did Jesus do? Jesus had it perfect, right? He had it made. He was living the dream. He's in perfect fellowship with the Father. Everything's great. But he looked down and he saw we had a need. And he took out of what he had that he had for all eternity produced in his life. He had created heaven and produced this perfect place where everything happened according to his will. 
right? That's why we're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And what did he do? He left that. He left that, and he gave us of himself because we had a need. We were lost. And if someone didn't rescue us, we would be separated from him forever. He didn't want that for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Like, the very nature of Christianity should be the same mindset, right? To give of myself, to lay down my life for others. So I ask you this morning, have you put off the mindset that thinks it's okay to take from someone else without their permission? If you haven't done that, this is a good day to do that. Let him that stole steal no more. Or this morning, maybe if your idea of the good life is having lots of free time and living for self, then, well, then you need to get in God's word. You need to say, Lord, I need to get in your word. I need to let you renew my mind. I need to let you change my thinking on work. And if you understand that the Bible teaches the value of work, have you embraced the concept that work provides an opportunity to be a blessing to those who have a need? Let me tell you, I'm so grateful for the people that ministered to me in times when I was in need, and they gave out of their abundance to help me. But it's really cool when you can do that for somebody else. I remember the first time that me and Bev were able to say, hey, God's really blessed us. Like, you know, we've worked hard, and we've, we've accomplished some things, and we know about this family that has a need. Do you want to help them out? Yeah, let's help them out. It was a cool thing because we'd been on the receiving end for a lot of years. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's God's honest truth. Have you put on generosity? This morning would be a good day to do that. Well, the next thing Paul addresses is he begins talking about our communication. He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. He starts off again. What's the first thing? Stop doing something. He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Literally, it reads, stop letting any and all kinds of unfit words go out of your mouth. In other words, we have control of what comes out of our mouths. And he says, stop letting things come out of your mouth that are unfit. He says, you Ephesian Christians, you need to change the way you talk to each other. You need to change the way you talk to each other, and that starts by putting off what he calls corrupt communication. What is corrupt communication? It's a very broad word, but it means that which is harmful, that which is unwholesome. It means that which is rotten or decaying, something putrid, but it could also be something worthless or just unfit for use. It has no purpose, like my bird. Not good at anything except eating my food, biting people. It's not entirely true. It brings a smile to a few people's faces. We need to stop speaking any and all words that are rotten, decaying, that are bad or harmful, or that are worthless. Any and all words that are unfit, never fit to be used by a Christian, need to stop coming out of our mouths. Now, I told you, Paul's stepping on our toes. He's getting up right in our face. Because certainly this means that foul and crass language has no place coming out of the mouth of a Christian. 
Now, I've heard people say, oh, well, the Bible doesn't say that swear words are, they didn't even exist during the Bible times. I understand what you're saying, and I'm going to politely tell you that that is an ignorant statement. If you know anything about people in other cultures and other languages, they have their own swear words, right? Right? Like if you speak, a, you speak another language, you know there's words you're not supposed to say. That's not just unique to that language either, right? Every language has their words you're not supposed to say. And every language of all time has had words you're not supposed to say. So it's not like we're going to get to heaven and Paul's going to be like, wow, I never knew about swear words. I'd have wrote something about that. He did write something about that because it existed in his day. Foul and crass language has no place coming out of the mouth of a Christian. But it also includes being nasty with your words. In other words, making any statements that are rotten, harmful, or worthless. You know what happens when you put something rotten around other things that aren't rotten? They start becoming rotten. And so words that are going to bring rot into someone else's life, that are going to bring decay, or going to be harmful to them, bad for them, or don't build them up, they're just worthless. Those are things that we should not be speaking either. So it includes speaking unkindly. For the Christian Words are certainly weapons when we speak them to the enemy forces that tempt us or attack us, right? I mean, Jesus says it is written, right? When the enemy tempted him, he said it is written. So words are weapons to be used against the enemy. But words are never valid as weapons when we're speaking to our spouse or to our kids or to our parents or to our brothers and sisters in Christ or even to an enemy. If we are speaking words to a person, they're not to be used as weapons. They're to be used as tools to build something. That's what Paul says next. Stop doing that, he says, but rather speak that which is good to the use of edifying. Let no corrupt communication come of your mouth. And then it's a real, there's a really hard if-then statement to translate in English. It just does, which is why they don't put it here. But it's basically the idea is if anything's going to come out of your mouth, let it be this, that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister unto the hearers. If what you're going to say is something good, then say that. Well, what is something good? Well, the word here, good, it means morally good in its character. It's similar to up in verse 28 when it says, to work his hands the thing that is good, something morally good, something useful, something beneficial in its effect. If that's what you're going to say, well, then don't stop saying that. In fact, let that come out of your mouth. Let those words occur. Now, it's not just something morally good, but it's to the use of edifying, Paul says. The phrase use of edifying are two words in the original language, and it means one means to strengthen or build up, and the other means what is lacking or what is needed. So if we're going to speak something good, it's to strengthen or build up what's lacking or needed in someone else's life. In fact, if we keep reading, it says that it may minister grace, which means that it might impart a spiritual benefit to those who hear. The word edify is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean to strengthen and build up. It means to increase the potential of someone or something. It means they were here, but now they're going to be here. I'm strengthening and building them up so that they're progressing, they're growing. It's a word that focuses on the process of someone's spiritual growth. And so the idea is, if the words that are coming out of your mouth are morally good, and they're going to help someone grow, then say that all the time. Always let that come out of your mouth. 
Stop speaking rotten words, but if it's going to benefit somebody, then speak that all the time. Now, that's a different way of speaking. (laughs) That's a different way of communicating than the world does it, than the way even probably we're used to doing it. And so it requires a whole new way of thinking about a person when they fail. Listen, there are two reactions or two thought processes I can have when someone fails. Let's take, for example, any parents here? Children ever fail. Mine don't, but yours probably do, right? They fail. Mine do. (laughs) They fail. We can look at that two different ways. I can look at their failure as something irritating that I have to ensure stops, or I can look at their failure as an opportunity to provide a benefit because they have a need. For example, let's say that they throw a temper tantrum or mouth off or whatever it might be. I can look at that and go, I don't let anybody talk to me like that. That's irritating. I'm going to make it stop. Or I can go, they haven't learned how to exercise self-control yet. I can help them with that. Now, both of them might end up in a spanking or discipline of some kind, but one has a whole different mindset than the other. One has the mindset of stopping the behavior because it bothers me, because I don't like their failure, their failure irritates me, or it insults me, and then the other one says, this is an opportunity for me to teach my child, to help them progress. Yeah, Paul got like this, right? Yeah, he's like, my baseball coach, when he would, he would yell at us. If you did something stupid, like if you made a mistake, it didn't matter. you muffed a ground ball, he might be ticked, but if you made a bad decision, he would get right up in your face when you'd come into the dugout, and of course, what's the natural reaction when someone who's quite larger than you gets in your face? You back up. He would step right on your foot so you couldn't back up, and you had to hear what he had to say. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. We hear this, we go, ugh, and we just want to kind of like, kind of crawl and get down into a little small place. I don't want to hear this anymore. And Paul's going, no, (laughs) you're not going anywhere. I've got you cornered because you need to hear this. I love you. Jesus loves you. You need to hear this. We need to have our whole mind rewired when it comes to how we communicate to people if we want to communicate correctly. If we want to stop communicating incorrectly, corruptly, then we need to let the Lord change our thinking. Because if I don't see an opportunity to come alongside to help when I speak, if I don't do that, but rather I'm just irritated how someone's made my life harder or, or I'm bothered by their failure, then the words that are going to come out of my mouth are going to be very different. Now, if you're hearing what Paul says and you're saying, get off my toe, or you're thinking, well, this is just not fair. I mean, that's too much. You know, I, I can't do that. Well, what does Jesus teach us? And what did Jesus do when he came? The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe. Yeah, 221 through 23. We read earlier, he says, lay aside all this stuff at the beginning of chapter 2. But Peter begins saying, okay, lay aside that, but put on this. 
And when he's talking about how we interact with others, he uses Jesus as an example. He says in verse 21 of 1 Peter 2, he says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, he did not revile back in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. We talked about this last week when it concerns wrath, where when we talk about wrath, what we're saying is, is that I'm going to bring justice. And the Bible tells us to give place to wrath. So that's God's job, right? To bring justice. It's the same thing here. I might look at somebody, and for example, in the situation with a child, I could look at them and I could say, what you're doing is irritating me. You know better than that. I've told you 18 other times to not do that. And now you did it again. And so I can either, with my words, I can cow them into obedience. I can threaten them into obedience. I can insult them into not irritating me anymore. Or I can say this is an opportunity to teach. I remember when my oldest son, who I won't name, because he lives far away and he's not here in the service this morning. When he first became a teenager, he's right over there if you don't know him. <clears throat> when he became a teenager, he was a great teenager. He was the best, best teenager you could have. But you have challenges, right? You have someone who's starting to learn to independently think about things and you don't, you want them to do that, but not differently than you because <laughs> that creates challenges, right? And so I would get so irritated inside and I, I didn't communicate well. And Bev kept telling me to read a book called Age of Opportunity. In the very first chapter, it talks about seeing these things as opportunities, not irritants or obstacles. It's an opportunity. They don't know that yet. You know, this is your opportunity to disciple your kid. And I had to change my whole way of thinking if I was going to be a, a faithful father of a teenager to someone who's a great teenager, but well, I wasn't a great dad. God wants to change our thinking, to be like him, to not be insulted. You're like, how could they do that? Like, dads don't deal with this so much. They're, they're more irritated that someone's been disrespectful, but mom gets hurt, right, mom? You get hurt. Because it starts off like, you know, you're, 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 you're yelling at him, you're mad, you're frustrated, but then by the end you're crying. Why? Because I love you, and why would you talk to me like that? Or why would you ignore what I told you to do? But it's not about you. It's not about getting back at them because they hurt you. It's not about somehow beating them into submission with your words to get them to do what you want them to do so they stop hurting you. It's an opportunity to impart a blessing to them, to see something that's lacking, to say, well, they don't realize you're not supposed to do that. They haven't gotten, learned self-control yet. They haven't, they haven't learned how to think through this process. So now you approach it differently. Instead of speaking out of your hurt, you sit down with them and you go, hey, so what made you think it was okay to talk to me like that? What did you think beforehand that made you come to the conclusion that, yeah, I can talk to mom like this? Well, you're going to get the answer. It's going to be, well, no, I didn't think that. Exactly, you didn't think that. So how often do you think about what you're going to say before you say it? Be honest with me. And if you won't be honest with me, be honest with the Lord. I'll leave you with him. Sometimes you have to do that because they're stubborn, right? Because they're young. They also haven't learned to be humble, right? 
So sometimes you tell them, you say, listen, I want you to go talk to the Lord about this, and you come back to me and let me know what he says about how you're talking to mom, or how you're talking to me, or how you're handling this area of obedience and disobedience, the rules of the house, whatever it might be. You go talk to him, and you come back to me and tell me what he says. Now, they got two options there. They can harden their heart even further and not talk to the Lord, and that's going to create problems between them and the Lord. It's not a you and them problem anymore. It's a them and Jesus problem. I found when I looked at those things as opportunities to teach and instruct and impart some kind of blessing that it was much different conversation that we had. Did you talk to the Lord about that? No. Why haven't you talked to the Lord about that yet? I don't know. Does it concern you at all that you don't think it's important for you to talk to God about how you acted? I'll come back in an hour and we'll talk about that. I mean, these are opportunities to teach because the goal isn't to make them do something. The goal is to get them to choose to do something, to be obedient to the God who made them, who loves them, and has the best in store for them. Because if that lesson, they leave your house and they don't learn that, it doesn't matter how well behaved they are. They'll never be able to live on their own. This is why the Bible writers have so much to say about how we speak. We could do the whole book of Proverbs, like 50% of it is talking about how we talk to people. In Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 4, I'll just read this section. It's so much here, but I'll just read a, a small section of it. Proverbs 15, 1, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words, harsh words, stir up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge correctly, aright, but the mouth of fools pours out foolishness. It's like a faucet. It just keeps coming. Don't think about what you're saying. You just talk. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, even our hearts. And so a wholesome tongue is a, a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. When our tongues are, are, are speaking wholesome things, it brings life to people. But perverseness in our tongue, it's like a breach in our spirit inside. It's like, a, it's like a crack in how we were designed to be. It's not right. James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, be slow to speak, slow to wrath, quick to listen. Good rule to live by. In James chapter 1, verse 26, he continues his mindset on speech and communication. He says this, if any man among you seem to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is vain, worthless. What I say matters because I'm not to live the self-life anymore. I need to put off my right to say whatever I want, whenever I want. I need to make a decision to please God with what I say from now on. That's what Paul says. Stop saying things you shouldn't say. Stop thinking it's okay to say things you shouldn't say. And recognize you need to be yielded to the Lord to please Him with what is going to come out of your mouth from now on. Now, again, that kind of radical change only happens when we're letting the Holy Spirit renew our thinking on how we talk, which is why Paul says what he does next in verse 30. In verse 30 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It might seem like it's a whole new thought, but the word end here is what we call 
in Greek language, a copulative conjunction. In other words, it's where two phrases or two sections are bound together by this one word. They're, they're in a close relationship that logically goes together. So when he says here, and stop grieving the Holy Spirit, it goes hand in hand with stop speaking things that shouldn't come out of your mouth. In other words, when we speak things that shouldn't be coming out of our mouth, we make the Holy Spirit sad. It breaks his heart. It breaks the Holy Spirit's heart. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? Well, the day of redemption is when we get our new bodies. When I shed this glorious Adonis thing I'm wearing here, and I put on a regular body. No, when I shed this monster I'm in, I'm going to get a new body that will be freed from the presence of sin. We're currently, as Christians, free from the guilt and the power of sin, but I'm still stuck in this thing. Someday we will be liberated from the presence of sin. And until that day, the Bible teaches us that God has given us Himself. He's given us His Spirit, His Holy Spirit as His mark of ownership in order to keep us safe all the way to the day of liberation. We already learned about that in Ephesians 1.13. It says, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. It's one of the blessings of being in Christ. He's put his Holy Spirit inside of us, and he's going to keep us until that day. That's God's promise. I put my mark of ownership on you. I'm going to make sure you make it to the end. The helper is there to get you there. But the idea that Paul's communicating now is that we need to cooperate with that keeping work of God's Spirit so that we can please God on the journey to the day of liberation. He says, I'm going to get you there, but he doesn't want us to live in a way that displeases him along the journey. If we're going to please him along the journey, we need to be cooperating with the work that the Holy Spirit's trying to do in us. We need to yield to the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of our flesh. And so the desires of my flesh say, I don't care that a soft answer turns away wrath. I want to give a harsh answer. That's going to make me feel better, or that seems fair. The Holy Spirit, its heart breaks when we have that mindset because he's saying, no, that's not me. That's not my heart. That's not what I want to do in this situation. We talked about how corruptible speech affects others in a negative way. Well, God says, I'm not willing that anybody should perish. He looks at what we've done to him and he says, well, I don't want to get back at you. I don't want anybody to perish. I don't want to be the one who speaks words or does things that causes destruction in their lives. I want to rescue him. And that's the mentality we need to have when we speak. When I ignore or resist how the Holy Spirit is seeking to change my thinking on how I talk to others, and I decide to speak to someone however I want to, it breaks God's heart. That's the behavior that put Jesus on the cross. I need to stop doing that. I need to let God's Spirit change my thinking so that when I speak, I do please the Lord instead. So how do you let God's Spirit change your thinking on how you speak? <laughs> well, first you need to read your Bible so you can know the, the heart of God, like what he's like. Like I, I quoted a few verses at you, but there's lots more in there about the heart of God towards people, sinners, us, you and me. But in addition to that, we also can know from the scriptures the kind of communication that's forbidden and the kind of communication that's allowed. For example, I gotta wrap this up quick, 
But in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, listen, your mindset is to be, to love like brothers, to be compassionate, to be tender-hearted, to be kind. But then in verse 9, he says, and do not return, he says, cursing for cursing or railing for railing, insult for insult, but contrarywise, blessing. For you know that thereunto are you, you are called is unto a blessing. In other words, when someone is getting on me and speaking things that they shouldn't be speaking to me, I don't get to just respond alike. I need to respond with a blessing. You're a jerk. You're wonderful. <laughs> Not like this. You're a jerk. You're wonderful. I know I'm using a silly example, but let me give you a more real-to-life example. Very frequently, because I can be a real pest with my words sometimes, and I'll know it because my bride will do this. She'll go, I love you. I'm on your side. I'm with you in this. And my heart just breaks because I think I have pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where she is making it very obvious that she's not going to push back. That's how you give blessing for railing. That's how you return cursing with blessing. Now, you're only going to learn what is okay to do and what's not okay to do by getting in God's Word. I hope I don't have to say, I know I do, I shouldn't have to say, but cursing at each other as married couples is not a valid form of communication in marriage. Name-calling, insulting, is not a valid form of communication in marriage. It's not a valid form of communication in parenting. So you need to get in God's Word and learn what kind of communication is off-limits, illegal, and what is okay. But second, we need to learn to think before we speak. And again, there's so many verses in the Bible about this truth. So I'm just going to read one to you this morning. I, I don't know how my message got longer. I didn't even tell the squirrel story in this service. But in Proverbs chapter 15, 28, it says this. It says, the heart of the righteous studies to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Mouth of the wicked is just a faucet. You just turn it on, junk starts coming out. But the righteous person, someone who's right with God, thinks about what they're going to say before they speak. It asks the question, is what I'm about to say going to make someone spiritually stronger or is it going to do harm to them? Is what I'm about to say going to help someone grow in Christ, or my word's going to leave them where they are, or even lead them away from the Lord? And so I ask you this morning, do you need to put off the self-life mindset as it concerns communication? It concerns the words that comes out of your mouth. Do you need to put off foul language? If that's a part of your life right now, this is the morning to say, okay, I repent. That's, that's not going to be part of my life anymore. You know, today is days to do that if you haven't ever done that, or need to redo it, because that's what Jesus teaches us. Do you need to stop grieving the Holy Spirit where it concerns your words? If you struggle with what comes out of your mouth being pleasing to God, this morning is the best day to put that off and to put on a new way of approaching how you communicate with people. Because we remember what Jesus did for us, how he speaks to us, how he serves us, how he laid down his life for us. When we remember the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember his death, remember his incarnation, his life. This is the best time to make a decision like that. And so I urge you as the worship team comes up and 
We have the elements. If you don't have them, the ushers will be coming through the aisles. You can wave at them and they'll get you one. But, but as we sing a song right now and prepare our hearts to remember what Christ did for us, that's the time to make that decision to say, okay, Lord, enough's enough. I've, I've allowed myself to just say what I want to say for long enough. I'm choosing today to let you change my thinking about how I speak. Choosing today to get in your word so I can learn what's off limits and what's okay when it concerns how I speak. Choosing to put off theft. Choosing to put off laziness at my, my job. I'm choosing to put off a, a wrong mindset towards work. I'm going to put on, Lord, how you think about work, how you, how you look at work. And Lord, I'm going to put on generosity. I want to be someone who looks at what other people have, where they might have a need. So when I'm working hard, I know I'm working for something beyond just the American dream. I'm working for something where I can be a blessing to those around me. Amen? Lord, we love you, and we give our hearts to you now to do just that. You have given us everything. You laid down your life for us, Lord. You are the example. You did all these things that Paul's urging us to do. It's not like you're exempt from this, Lord. You lived it. And now your desire is to live it through us by your Spirit. And so here we are. We yield ourselves to you, Lord. Take our lives, spend them for your glory, work in us this change as we commit to change, as we make these specific commitments of what needs to change. And we remember, Lord, it's all, the, all that we have is because of what you did for us. Lord, the whole reason we can be in a place where we can repent and we can change is because of what you did for us. So Lord, when we remember the love that, Lord, you showed towards us in the incarnation of the cross, That's our right response to you, our reasonable act of worship based on the mercy you've shown to us. We give it to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.